So as we read this, and I'm, I'm going to read um, 17 through 29 because this is a section that, that coheres together here, but I want us to be thinking, um, you know, what are you clinging to for salvation? And there's an evangelism explosion question that we ask a lot, which is, um, you know, if you were to die today, and you know, do you think you'd go to heaven? And if yes, then you stood before God, and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And this is Paul's letter to say, this is what you say. You don't have to quote Romans. It's a very simple answer, which is Christ for me. Died for me. Christ for me. And um, the good news is, um, you won't be asked such a question because you'll be standing there in shiny clothes. So um, you'll be clothed in his righteousness with all of his work credited to us. But for Paul, the solution to the problem of sin is not a new or deeper understanding of the law. It's not moral um, improvement. It's not a rebalancing of the scales, as I've said earlier. Um, for Paul, all that matters for life and faith for entrance into heaven, is faith in Christ. That's it. That we do get into heaven by works. The works of Christ applied to us as we apprehend those works by faith in him. And he gives us that faith. So it's all of God from beginning to end, and which is why we're grateful and we're, we're faithful and, and thankful and we worship because he has indeed saved us. So if you're clinging to anything for salvation, hoping in anything for salvation other than Christ, then that's hopeless. And for the Jew, this was a very hard question because the Lord um, had singled them out. The very word of God had been given to them. But a, a, a great part of the Jews, um, they had turned this all into a mere external religion. And God was after the heart. And we can. this is what we're going to see this morning and it really needs to be understood and it will help fix a lot of bad theology. It will help you to have a, a good lens with, by which to read Scripture, um, which is you get to abandon this terrible notion that the Old Testament God is one God and the New Testament God is another God. The Word of God tells us God is the same yesterday, day, forever. So we don't have to worry about such. But we see the Old Testament God, man, he sure does seem mean. He sure does seem wrathful. He, well, guess what? He's still that way. But you got something wrong about the mean part. But the wrathfulness of her sin, good news. He will not allow the powers of hell to assail the church more than is necessary because he hates the powers of hell. He hates sin. He hates sinners and is angry with them every day. Good news is he even extends grace to those who hate him today. So that now we live in times of common grace where the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked. The light shines. The food is given. And for those who um, acknowledge his gift, acknowledge his graces, then that's a great blessing. And it's a gift of God. But for those who think my own hands did this, um, I got this because of whatever, or they don't acknowledge God, then they're only heaping coals on their head, heaping condemnation on their souls for the day of judgment. So our prayer for our enemies is, if we are to love them properly, is for their conversion. We're to preach the gospel, live the gospel, and pray that those who do not know Christ would come to know him. And so that that might even happen through us. But for the Jewish person, it was somewhat difficult to say, you need Christ and Christ alone. And the reason it was difficult was because they were not living all their Old Testament lives 
by faith. They did it as if by works. So we had to be careful in this side of the cross that we're not doing the same thing. We've been given more light. We ought not be doing the same thing, living out this Christian life as if it is by works and not by faith. So this Old Testament, God has always been, from the fall, once Adam and Eve sinned, the only question is, he said the day you eat from the tree you shall die, and yet they were expelled from the garden, but they lived. But we know there is a spiritual death that we're all born into, but we live. And there is hope as long as we live. And he clothed them with the, clothed, with the skin of an animal requiring a bloody sacrifice so that they might live, pointing forward to the bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ who would be the one to come. And we're going to see circumcision is later given to Abraham as Abraham is called out and is told to, to do these things and he believed God and that faith was counted to him as righteousness and he becomes the father of the faithful. That's what we're going to look at. But what I want you to really get, if you can get this, it helps the reading of the Bible completely. The way of salvation since the fall of Adam and Eve has always been through faith in the work of Jesus Christ to come, as much as it had been revealed. Always through grace. People in the Old Testament were not saved by works. They were saved by grace. All those works that were given to them, those 613 or so commandments that were given to them in these civil and ceremonial laws were just given to them to point them towards Christ as they lived their life by faith so that they would be saved by grace. How else could they be saved? We lost. Justice was given when sin happened. But even that became grace as God covered their sin and promised to send one who would crush the serpent's head and put enmity, hostility between the children of Eve and the children of Satan. That's grace. It's all been of grace. So you had to kind of get that through your head because the prophets kept banging the people's hearts in the Old Testament saying, faith, believe, God wants your heart. Same thing that we say today. Same gospel, same message, different times. And so that's where we're going to see. So Romans chapter 3, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, the word of the Lord. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, 
not by a letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The word of the Lord. So again, Paul is writing to this mostly Gentile church in Rome. The Jews had been driven out at some point by the government, but now they're um, coming back, and the Jews are the believing Jews are beginning to come back into the church, and their numbers may be growing. And so the, the confusion between what the Gentiles are understanding about the gospel and what the Jews may be bringing into it through the gospel, um, Paul wants to make sure that we have none of this. Because for the Jew, and you have to get this straight, circumcision was not just like our baptism, but similar. But, um, and baptism doesn't just replace circumcision, but they, they, they represent the sacrament of the same promise. And so that's where these connections come in. And so I kind of be careful what kind of signs I make when I start talking about circumcision. Um, so and be careful about Googling what it is, too, because that brings up all kinds of things. So the... Jewish person's identity was tied to circumcision, who the, the covenantal sign that was given to those who had been cut off from the rest of the world. But it was a bloody ritual that was also to point to the fact of, of death, blood, well, the life is in the blood. So anytime there's blood, it represents the death. It's all pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But what the Jew had done was make that sign, that marker upon them, a sign, a marker of the fact that, and there's writings from this time that was like, the Jew will not follow under judgment because he's been circumcised. The Jew will not follow under judgment because he has a law. So you can read these things that were written back then. And Paul is like, you're doing the same thing they've always done when the, when the prophets would come and they would say, don't tell me that you're not going to be judged because you have the temple. Jeremiah says, the temple, the temple, the temple. Basically, he says, I'm tired of hearing about the temple. The temple's not going to save you. It's your faith in God that's going to save you. And when you're just holding on to ex the externals of religion, these, um, these signs and seals, these um, shadows and forms, these types and shadows, it's called sometimes, they're just meant to, to point you to something. R.C. Sproul makes a point about what a sign is. He says, if you're going to... Um, I think it's like Disney World, and there's a sign, or Carowinds, it's closer, and it says Carowinds, you know, the sign is not Carowinds. So if you go to Carowinds, and you take your family to the sign, and you stand around the sign and take pictures, and you say, well, Carowinds is pretty cool, I guess, and then you go home, and you're like, we went to Carowinds. <laughs> you went to the sign, you didn't go to Carowinds, well, what's the difference? That sign points to Carowinds, and it's the same thing with baptism, circumcision, the Lord's Supper, all these Old Testament rituals and things were just signs pointing to something. Same thing with um, the, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. There was nothing uh, about the fruit of the tree that had some sort of chemi chemical makeup of it that did something to us. It was a sacrament, a sign, that once you have disobeyed this thing God said not to do, your heart has gone. So when Eve finally took and ate, she was deceived because she wanted to be more like God, and, and Satan knew that about her. But when Eve ate, the Bible doesn't, I mean, Adam ate, the Bible doesn't say that he was deceived. And that's even worse. He, he like just obeyed his wife, or he thought, you know, she's eating, I might as well eat too, or whatever. But once you've done that, it is an indication of where your heart has gone. But until they did it, the law had not been broken. And so we see these things with baptism and the Lord's Supper and all these other signs. These are all pointing to greater realities. And so what Paul wants to make sure 
is that these Jewish people, as well as the Gentiles, and ultimately us today, understand that since the fall, God's people have always needed a new heart. It is a new heart that is necessary. And that can only come, it can only be given by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way. Who can save a sinner? Who can change a sinner's heart? Only the Holy Spirit. You must be born again from above by water and spirit. And if you're not born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God, Jesus told Nicodemus. And just to, you know, Romans is also to be taken as a whole, where you read the whole thing and you just, I like to have it unfurled before. I like the way that happens, but, but we do have the rest of it. So we can use later things that Paul says in Romans to interpret this. We can even use things Paul has said elsewhere to interpret this. And one of the things, so you want to find something that's just a clear statement about what he's saying. And Romans 3.23 is one of those clear statements. And it just says, all have sinned. Right there. All have sinned. Now that's very useful in evangelism because frequently somebody that you're sharing the gospel with will say, well, then, you know, then everybody's bad. Everybody's broken the law. Everybody's evil. Everybody, you know, and sometimes they're shocked or not or whatever. They think you're just doing a sales technique or something to say, you're right. The Bible says that. And you quote Romans 3.23. You know, all, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. All have sinned in Adam. And that's the deeper idea is that he represents us covenantally. All descending from Adam by ordinary generation, because that excludes Jesus, we have died in him and sinned in him. But when Jesus comes, we are adopted into another family. We have a new representative. He's called the second Adam in the Bible. So that now we are covered by him. He now represents us. All his righteousness given to us, where we are restored to glory. We're let back into paradise, the Garden of Eden in, in, the, in the Greek, and I think it's the Latin, the paradiso of God, the paradise of God. And the paradise is translated into this word garden because it's not like a garden that you have out in your yard, maybe some of you, but it's more like these like bush gardens or something like that. It's a, a, a king's garden. It's something that's a place where people go and they, they look at, and it's a, a, a thing that's like a, a park almost. And um, that's the Garden of Eden. That's that word. And so when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in the garden, this paradise of God, the real Eden where the, the flaming angels with the flaming swords guard the way to the tree of life. And now they, they step aside and they let the sinner through. The curtain has been torn in two and the curtain is Jesus and the sword is the law and you're able to now come in. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And, and Paul wants to say, and this is what we are going to get as we go through Romans and be greatly blessed, I hope, through this preaching and going through this, this book, is the, the gospel. What it means to be gripped by grace and saved by Jesus Christ. So let's go to something Paul wrote, Ephesians chapter 2. So it's just... Go toward the back. Those little smaller letters of Paul are, are grouped together. G-E-P-C. You can make that stand for something. General Electric Power Company. But it's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So we get to Ephesians chapter 2. And listen to the Word of God and what he says about this. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So again, this is the Jews talking to the non-Jews. And so by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances this is the old covenant of Moses. Um, when, when the Bible is making a, a distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant, we're talking about Moses, not Abraham. So you've got so another thing you have to get in your head. Old covenant is not equal to Old Testament. The, the Old Testament, which can be called the Hebrew Bible too, that has many covenants in it. But when he says the old covenant, the one which I made when I brought you out of Egypt, that's Moses. So it's an important thing, even if you don't understand the distinction right now, hopefully in a minute it will become clear, but it also gives you something to think about um, throughout your day. So he abolishes the law of commandments, the Mosaic uh, laws, all these um, commandments and laws that were given in, this, in the Mosaic covenant, and he might create, so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and Jew and Gentile, there's now one man, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, this is the Gentiles, and peace to you who were near, this is the Jew. For through him, we both, through Christ, we both have access, access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are, talking to the Jews, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him, and hope you see that repetition over again, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the church. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening in every gospel-believing, spirit-led, filled church is we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by 
the Spirit, being fitted together, he says elsewhere, as living stones. Now go to Galatians, the, the letter he wrote right before this one. Just go back a page. Galatians, well, maybe a few pages, but Galatians 3, in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is, of course, by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God, now remember, this is the one that was given circumcision. This is the one who's the father of all the Jews. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Believing was. Know then that it was those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Okay? Those of faith. Not just those who received the physical sign of circumcision, but those of faith. So we have spiritual Israel, and you have the nation of Israel. We have the visible church and we have the invisible church. The visible church is everybody who has made covenant with God through baptism and participating in the Lord's Supper as communion members. It's the visible church. You have made a commitment, an external commitment to Christ in this covenant. But for those who have faith, you are actually united to Christ. And there's a difference. If you, if you, you are a member of the church, if you profess faith and are baptized with water, you're a communing member of the church. If you come forward and you take the Lord's Supper, but without faith, these things only testify to your condemnation, that you deserve the, the waters to sweep over you and to, your blood has to be spilled. The, the, the bread, the person that died for you, you're going to have to do that yourself. So you're eating and drinking condemnation. Verse 7, No, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Are you of faith? And if you are of faith, you are a son of Abraham. You are a son of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, that he would declare righteous the Gentiles, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So he's preaching this gospel to Abraham. Where did Abraham live? Old Testament times. Okay? So the gospel is being preached in the Old Testament. If you rip out your Old Testament and say, I'm a New Testament church, it's like, well, you sure don't understand very much about your New Testament because it all comes out of that Old Testament. And the gospel is being preached to Abraham, saying, in you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. All the nations be blessed. This is Gentiles, too. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. This is what he's saying in Romans. Because work of the law is represented, too, by circumcision. So all who are relying on that circumcision are under a curse. For it is written, curse be everybody who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified, declared righteous before God by the law, because it says the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us, purchased us out of, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He did not purchase us from Satan. Okay? Satan didn't own us. Satan's not the one that's, that's the justice bearer over us. Satan's just an accuser. Satan's a liar. So when he pays the penalty, when he redeems us, he redeems us from the curse of the law. Who's the lawgiver? God the Father. So who's going to throw you in hell when you break the law? God the Father. 
Don't buy this mess that people like to say, God doesn't throw anybody into hell, we throw ourselves in hell. <laughs> Maybe. But when a guy has committed murder and he's thrown in prison, he doesn't throw himself in there. He's going to walk out. If he can, he's going to lie, cheat, steal. Maybe he feels bad about it. And he's like, I'll just go in there. But you're not going to get a sinner doing that. So you do not throw yourself in the hell. God Almighty, lover of holiness and justice, takes no pleasure in the damnation of a sinner, but he will do so to the glory of his justice because it is what the law demands. So God had to be satisfied. His justice... God's justice had to be satisfied. There's no salvation for, the, for Satan. There's no salvation for the demons. It is not offered. The demons believe and they shudder, and that kind of faith can't save you. It is trusting in God and these things. So what the payment had to be paid to God the Father, the Almighty, the Holy One who is going to bring wrath and justice upon sin. Who could, who, who could do that? So the Bible in Isaiah is true. God's own powerful right arm saved us. If God is after you, and you think about it, you've seen these movies where some, something's after you. Something bigger than that thing's got to get you. There's a Star Wars movie, one of those earlier ones, and it, uh, you know, there, there's, they're being chased by this big fish thing, and then this bigger fish gets it, and he says there's always a bigger fish. It's like, there's not a bigger fish than God. That's an okay analogy. But God is the biggest thing there is. God is if God is after you, who can save you? And the answer is nobody. But if God is for you, who can be against you? Nobody. And in Christ Jesus, that is God for us. God provides the sacrifice. He sacrifices himself for us so that he gets the glory and justice is satisfied on the cross and wrath is satisfied on the cross. And we come to him by faith. So verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, curses anyone, everyone who's hanged on the tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of who? Say it out loud because this is huge. Huge. I wish I could, that's the one time I wish I could do a trump. Huge. This is huge. Christ, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of? All right, I want everybody to do a unison reading. I'm going to read the first part and then you say it next word. Um, so in Christ Jesus, the blessing of, <laughs> let's say it as if we know the answer is indeed is Abraham. You're not going to say the wrong thing. Come on, you know it. You're going to say it. So for in Christ Jesus, the blessing of, you're still short on this thing. Some of you, Abraham, 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 the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham. What's the blessing of Abraham? That it might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham. There's a covenant made with Abraham. That covenant, that's us. We're in this covenant. We receive the covenant promises from Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is not the old covenant. The Mosaic covenant. Moses and Abraham. I know some of you might be looking at this and like, I don't know, okay, fine, what's the big deal? It's a huge deal if you get it. And if you don't get it, it's okay. Because it's all pointing to Jesus Christ by faith. It has to do with the Lord's Supper, has to do with baptism, has to do with who's in the covenant. It has to do with so many things. And then you go to Colossians chapter 2. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. And this is used a lot in some circles to say this is where um, baptism replaces circumcision. But it's like it's not quite an accurate thing anymore to say that the Lord's Supper replaces um, um, 
the Passover supper. So it's not, it's not a, a one for one thing because one represents something in one way and the other represents the same thing but in a different way. And so what we're seeing here is uh, <clears throat> what circumcision was a sign and symbol of is the same thing that baptism is a sign and symbol of. So there's our connection. So that when Paul starts to think about circumcision here, he immediately starts thinking about baptism so that he sees these connections because they're both connections to the Abrahamic covenant and the way God has worked his faith, our, us to be saved by faith and not by works. So we go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells vitally, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised. Right, stop right there a second. Who? This is the y'all. Y'all were circumcised. This is believing Jews and uncircumcised in the flesh, Gentiles. So, you guys, male, female, Jew, Gentile, you were circumcised in Christ. You also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Hmm, spiritual stuff we're talking about. A circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. So now we see the, the connection that Paul's making in his mind and theology between circumcision and baptism because the situation in Romans is you're talking about Christians who have fulfilled the law in Jesus Christ. You're talking about Christians who are now in Christ, in covenant with God, and you come in as a Jew saying, look at me, I'm a Jew, I'm circumcised, and you break the law. You're, 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 you're proud about the law. And Paul is saying, that's good if you can keep it but you don't, for all have sinned. So you better be looking at these uncircumcised Gentiles because they're getting something that you're not. And that's the promises of Abraham that have always been necessary for the individual believer in Israel. That unless you have faith, you are not of, you're not a true Israelite, you're not a true Jew. And now these guys have the substance. They've got the circumcised heart. They've got the spirit. They've got what these things all pointed to. They, you had the sign, they're living in carowinds. Don't sit around with your sign saying, look what I got, look what I got. They've got the real thing. They actually have this thing. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also are raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by counseling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That law that the Jews are clinging to, where is it written? Well, it's in these Old Testament Mosaic ordinances and stuff, and it stands against you. What did God do with it? He nailed it to the cross because Jesus Christ became a curse for us. You can't keep the law. Jesus kept the law perfectly and got nailed to the cross. He became the curse. All those ordinances, all those laws, when Satan says, you're not keeping this law, you're not keeping that law, you're not keeping that law, you look at him and you go, I know to my shame. It's nailed to the cross, though, and that's where my Savior is. 
And by his grace and by his mercy, I thank God I'm not who I was, but I'm looking forward to him making me into who somebody better than I am. But I'm hidden in him. It's not by my hands. It's not by works. It's by faith in Jesus Christ that I come to him. So in conclusion here, I want us to see is circumcision, circumcision, Old Testament circumcision, Abrahamic, Mosaic circumcision was always a sign of what the Spirit does in the elect those who are not only identified by Christ by covenant, but united with him by faith. It was always circumcision, faith, salvation, ultimately always a matter of the heart. Circumcision was a sign of regeneration. Circumcision was a sign of new heart. Circumcision is a sign of new birth. And that's what we're going to close with is looking at this quickly. So go to Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10, 15. These two verses. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your father's and chose their offspring after him, after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and no longer be stubborn. See, it's the Old Testament. He's telling them, don't just go by physical circumcision. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. He's speaking in a, a metaphor, an analogy. This is circumcise the foreskin of your heart. You see, it's about the heart. Old Testament, about the heart. And stay in Deuteronomy, go to chapter 30. And this is all what Paul is trying to say. You should have gotten this because it's always been taught. It's always been true. And we have to apply it to ourselves as well. Deuteronomy 30, verse 5 and 6. And the Lord God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and that you may live. See what he did there? He didn't say, hey, you know what? If you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you'll live. He says, I'm going to circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord thy God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit does that. How do people get saved in the Old Testament? Holy Spirit. Same way you get saved in the New Testament. Holy Spirit. Faith coming through the Holy Spirit. They had to have it. I will circumcise your heart. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this amazing thing. And we see this fully in the New Testament. And then the prophet Jeremiah. So it's after the Psalms, and you get to Isaiah, and then you have Jeremiah comes in after that somewhere. Jeremiah 9. And it's just, I'm sorry. Well, one is Jeremiah 9, so find that. Jeremiah 9, 25. We'll go there second. And the first place is Jeremiah 4, 4. So Jeremiah 4, 4. This is one verse, but it's worth seeing and marking and making sure you know it's there. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. He's not saying make sure you're having physical circumcision. Again, circumcise your hearts. And then Jeremiah 9.25, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. So just to let you see, there's lots of other places you can go, but the Old Testament was this circumcision is not what you're supposed to be clinging to. It's what it points to, which is you need a new heart. 
There's going to have to be bloodshed. There's going to be cutting off. There's going to be death. And it's going to be in Jesus Christ. But we're talking about a heart issue. So when you're coming to the church, and we're in Romans chapter 2, and they're trying to figure out for themselves, what do we do? So you get to 2.28 in Romans, and it says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. It is perfectly legitimate and theologically accurate to switch the word Jew to Christian because this is what he's saying. No one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly. And then you can do this. Nor is baptism outward and physical. A Christian is one inwardly and baptism is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter because his praise is from man, not from man, but from God. And everybody points out that his word praise, that's where the word Judah, where you get the word Jew in Hebrew, it means praise. So it's got a little play on words here. You're going you're gonna to have people praise you because you're a Jew? Well, this is about the heart. These guys aren't Jews, and they have their reality. And so I think there's a couple things that, that we need to understand. One is you have the reality. As a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. And you can look at the gospel in a couple of ways. You can be proud and you can say, I've been baptized. I'm a good person. I do a lot for Christ. I keep the law. I'm a good, upright person. I make sure, you know, you become a legalist because you're depending on the law. That's what happens. Um, but then God would say um, to, to you, do I have your heart? Do you love me? Do you love the people that I love? When you come to the table, is it by yourself and you're wondering how anybody else could ever come? Or do you understand that it's only by, by grace, by faith, and that the, everybody is in need of Christ? And he says to that person, you need to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Or perhaps you're fearful and poor in spirit, and who am I? And God says to that person, to you, trust in me. Believe in me. I have given myself on the cross for the sins of my people for all who believe. Trust in me. Salvation is a gift and it's given to us by faith. You trust in Christ and his righteousness and his all-sufficient sacrifice, his promises. All who come to me I will by no means cast out. And he even says, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be washed as white as snow. And then I will be your guide and you will be my people. And that's the Abrahamic promise fulfilled in the church. And then he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he says, come to this table. Slide your knees at the family table. This is for the family. This is for the believer where God says, I am yours and you are mine. And we get to say, once again, I recommit myself to you. I, I am yours. You are mine. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gospel that's mine. If you have sin that clings to you and you're thinking, I'm not worthy, it's like, <laughs> that's the point. You are not worthy. That's why we don't have you up here. And that's why you need this. It's because we know the one who is worthy. And so we acknowledge our need of his grace every day. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the grace that's ours, the mercy that's ours, the cross that's ours, Christ who is ours, you who are ours. We love you. We, we pray that you will continue to drive this home as we sing to you and as we come to your table. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.